You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello, and wherever you're listening from, welcome to this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. This is episode seven. I'm Dean Askin, here along with my co-host at the other mic, Jeanette Campbell. Dean, make that your excited co-host, Jeanette Campbell, because I've really been looking forward to talking to our two guests, Caroline Casey and Paul Pullman, and getting their perspective on the state of disability inclusion and how much it's driving the future of work in 2022. Well, you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation too, Jeanette, because I'm always referring to research by the valuable 500 and pieces I write. And now I actually get to have a conversation with the two top people at the helm of this initiative, one that's globally leading thought change and driving more conversation about an action on disability inclusion in business. And think about it. Here we are in the third decade of the 21st century, and finally, Disability inclusion in business and employment is being talked about more than ever before, and it's starting to drive the future of work. You know, a TD Economics study back in 2019 pulled no punches about that. Its author stated in no uncertain terms, businesses that don't expand their talent searches and proactively recruit people who have a disability are going to get left behind in the years ahead. We had a great conversation about that one with the report's authors and the executive vice president of TD Bank Group. That was in episode two of the show. Have a listen if you haven't heard that one yet. But right now, settle in with another cup of coffee or tea for this conversation with the founder of the Valuable 500, Caroline Casey, and its chair, Paul Pullman. It's getting to the end of the workday where they are. They're talking to us from the UK. Caroline is the businesswoman and activist behind the Valuable 500 that launched at the 2019 World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It's the world's largest CEO collective and business movement for disability inclusion. Caroline Casey is going to tell us more about the Valuable 500 in a minute. But first, I'd like to tell listeners about her. She's an Ashoka Fellow, an award-winning social entrepreneur, who's committed to driving lasting change through business for people globally who have a disability. Caroline's also an Eisenhower Fellow, a TED speaker, a past advisor for the Global Clinton Initiative, and again, the founder of the Valuable 500. Caroline, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. And I always think you're the one we read out bios. You should put in there troublemaker, really good dancer, not a great cook, uh, an adventurer. Um, And I have to say, um, definitely somebody who loves being around people who think things are possible. Uh, There's no doubt that right at the heart of, I think, who I am and the people around me are people who actually put their minds to doing something and don't don't give up until it's done. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. We're thrilled to have you and feel like we are in great company. We we are, and we do. Paul Pullman, welcome to you as well to the show. Well, thank you, Dean and Jeanette, uh, for having us. Really uh, look forward to it. And more importantly, thank you for 
shining some light on this important topic better now than ever. Now, Paul is the chair of the Valuable 500. He's a business leader. Paul was the global CEO of Unilever for a decade. He's also a climate and equality campaigner and co-author of the recently published and critically acclaimed book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Paul also helped develop the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And that's particularly relevant to the conversation we're going to have in this episode. And that's because those 17 goals are an integral part of the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. And disability inclusion is embedded in many of the Sustainable Development Goals. So now you know why both Jeanette and I are jazzed about having Caroline and Paul on this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D and getting their take on the current global state of things with disability inclusion. But before we delve right into that state of things, Caroline, for listeners who may not be familiar with the Valuable 500, can you tell us about this initiative and why it was so important to you to found the Valuable 500? Um, So Yasmin Alorot, one of your fellow country uh, women, has a great expression. Um, The expression around nothing about us without us, a very important disability line. And I love what she says. It simply should be nothing without us. And in a way, this is where we're at. We're at this incredible moment in time where I think this conversation about disability inclusion, making the case for disability inclusion in business, I think we're done. You know, we used to talk about the moral case about what was right in business, and then it was the business case and have to convince the stakeholders. But I think we're coming full circle around again. We're entering a decade of uh, real disruption in our, in our world and how complicated it is. And we have to come full circle back to human business. Um, there's no longer a conversation. Does business have a role to play? Of course it does. It's the most powerful force in this planet. The state of disability exclusion is one of the least known in the world. I mean, first of all, disability at the moment is 1.3 billion people. With a mother and a father, we're talking 54% of our global economy. And yet the exclusion of disability, which we all know too well, so I'm not going to go through it all, but we know we're taking 50, 50% less likely to get a job, 50% more likely to experience poverty. And look what even in COVID, um, six out of the 10 uh, people who acquired who died of, of COVID in the UK. So, I mean, we can go on about all the all of the, the exclusion, horrific stats that exist, but the solution is what I'm interested in. And if business is the most powerful force on this planet, it needs to have a role at the table, okay? But disability has been on the poor cousin of the inclusion agenda. It has sat on the outskirts of business. It's been that outlier and we've never seen accelerated change. And that's just not okay. Inclusion is either all for everyone or not at all. And you cannot have an a la carte approach to, to disability inclusion. You can't have an a la carte approach to inclusion. And business need to be responsible for that. So the Valuable 500 was formed to create a coalition or a collective community of business who were accountable and committed to working together. And this is the thing of working together to end disability exclusion by its practices. And what makes us very different is we didn't say we wanted to be inspiring. What we wanted is to put that action and that accountability into the hands of the most important people in business. Inclusive business is created by the leaders. 
So what the Valuable 500 was was saying, you CEOs, you leaders have a role to play. And what that was making them do is promising us and delivering on board level or leadership commitment on disability inclusion in their business, putting their, their signature to it, leading with their voice, and then by doing that, you've got 500 now, 500 of the world's most important CEOs in the most important brands representing 22 million people who will activate that change through their collective mass. Caroline, sorry for the, the, the delay in my response. I'm just listening to your first answer. It's the energy, the power, the passion, the commitment, and the importance of what you're doing and what the Valuable 500 is doing is just coming through so loud and clear. Um, and thank you for that response. And, and Paul, I just wanna ask you, uh, why is it so important to you to be chair of this initiative? Well, there was no doubt in my mind when Caroline was uh looking for uh, someone not only to chair it, but uh, but to get the business community at these numbers together that I uh, could help her and had a responsibility to say yes. I mean, this is uh, probably the biggest initiative that uh, collective initiative that you find in the private sector, 500 of the biggest companies, trillions of dollars in turnover and market cap, uh, millions of people in employment. That's how you drive change at scale. At a moment in history, frankly, as we see with climate change or of uh, food security or many of the other challenges, that it's difficult to rally together. You know, I always like the African proverb that alone we can go fast, but together we can go far. And here it's a matter of going far now. The uh, I was uh, humbled enough to be part of the uh, high-level panel to develop the sustainable development goals that you referred to that were approved at the UN in September 2015. And they have as a simple objective to not leave anybody behind. I've always firmly believed in everything I try to do, that if we don't protect these basic human values of dignity and respect or equity or compassion, that the world frankly wouldn't function. We erode uh, humanity by violating these principles. And that's why I've always fought gender. Unilever was a gender balanced organization. I only accepted a job if I could take a gender balanced board. I've always been an LGBT champion, a he for she board member as for, of the UN women and, and many other things. And unfortunately, even in my efforts over the years, I have to admit that uh, I probably also neglected disability despite having started with my wife one of our bigger foundations in Africa, the Kilimanjaro Blind Trust. Blind Trust, which is now in eight countries and has about 20,000 visually impaired uh, children in schools trying to unlock their uh, literacy for life. So it's a very easy thing to talk to business people now about the economic imperative. You're talking 15% of the population, seven to eight trillion in spending power. We can really show that as you referred to before, uh, Jeanette, if you if you uh, neglect that uh, that group, uh, it's very difficult to get an engaged workforce uh, to be able to design and develop your products, whatever industry you might want to be in, to be successful. And we see that everywhere. But there's also the social and moral reason that comes with it, um, where we have an obligation, I believe, to uh, ensure that we create this inclusive environment. So that's 
why I'm honored to uh, to chair it and be part of it. I'm uh, mighty proud to see what uh, Caroline in a relatively short period of time has been able to pull together and deliver. And it's starting to take hold. Uh, the CEOs are resting. We're starting to see the changes coming through. And that's obviously ultimately what counts. It's the impact that we're after. Well, mind you, I have to say, Paul wasn't really given a chance. I, <laughs> I chased poor Paul down. He was the... He was the leader I wanted you've got to remember before the valuable 500 we had never had one CEO publicly stand for disability can you believe that in 2017 I mean I had to ride a horse across Colombia to the main stage of one young world to find Paul um, and I was not letting him go you've got to remember he was a leader that stood alone when we t when he started to speak, uh, speak about sustainability and I think Paul you got what I was trying to do because it was like you're like this lone person when people think, no, you're, what are you talking about? And so for me, I had watched what Paul had done with sustainability. And I was trying, you've got to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? You've got to see what works before what you've done rather than trying to recreate a wheel. So I thought, well, if Paul could do it for sustainability, could we not do it for disability? So yeah, I wasn't going to let him go. But we're very lucky and very proud. Well, well yeah, you're both very passionate about, about what you're doing and, and, you know, and, time you know, speaking of time you've kind of mentioned this um i want to jump in here and ask and you know whoever wants to uh, answer the question or answer first uh, feel free to jump in but i want to get your perspective on and caroline you sort of touched on this a little bit already but i i how would you describe the state of disability inclusion in business you know and here we are in 2022 i mean how much progress have we made compared to even say just five or ten years ago well, I could say I'm an activist for 22 years. Um, I um, worked for Accenture as a management consultant. Um, and at that time, I was in the disability closet, you know, um, because I thought if I owned my disability and I spoke about it openly, I wouldn't have the same chances and the opportunities. And so, you know, I, I think that was the state of the world 22 years ago. So let's go to now. Um, well, firstly, I'm myself and Paul have been at One Young World, and that's where we are currently. And yesterday we had a panel where we were speaking about um, representation and the creative industries. And I was sitting in between Daniel Durant, who played the character of Leo in Coda, and Coda um, won an Oscar this year. And it is the first time ever we had a film. Um, which was had subtitles um, in every cinema uh, it, it was shown in. Um, and it won an Oscar, you know, and this is, this is a really important moment. And then on the other side of me was Sinead Burke, an Irish uh, disability activist, person of small stature, who had been on the front cover of Vogue um, only two years ago, and the first person of small stature to walk the Met Gala. So just let's just for a moment take that was a conversation speaking to a room of two and a half thousand people on the leadership stage about what they can do for disability in business so have things changed yes have we come out of the closet yes but then on the other side i want to say a few things that are terrifying in the FTSE 100 um we did a piece of research with tortoise media that has said that we have no person with a disability identifying in senior leadership position or upwards that is, that's, that's just inconceivable, right? We also know that we have a situation where four out of five of the C-suite or senior leaders who have a disability are not disclosing it and 7% already declare. 
So the issue of disability at the highest le the levels of power is still seen as something less than. So in some ways, the still uncomfortable and fear that existed for me 20 years ago is still there, okay? But what's different and what's exciting is the younger generation talking about disability pride. We're starting to see inclusive design being more mainstream. We're hearing about accessibility and captioning. And through COVID, that had to be something that was mainstream, not just for somebody or just for a small niche market. We are starting to see D and disability in the diversity and inclusion agenda conversations being equalized. We're starting to see investment behind it. We're starting to CEOs speak. So what's important is the valuable 500 could not have existed five years ago. Just be really clear, it could not have existed. So for a moment, we need to mark what's important. 500 companies have stood up representing 22 million um, employees, and that is 64 sectors in 41 countries. That is a testament. It is a testament to a new appetite. And what the most important thing is, I refuse to keep finding problems for every solution. I want to find solutions for the problem. I don't want to hear how difficult it is for self-ID because of legislation. Well, let's build cultures of trust and go around legislation. So it is, we can't keep navel gazing about the problems, but finding people are willing to come together. And in coalitions like the Valuable 500, safety in numbers, because fear still is at the base of the problems of the systemic change that exists. And if we don't talk about things, we can't solve the problems. But now is releasing the energy of young people with the attention of our C-suite and our CEOs. And I do think we can actually move forward. And let's celebrate the moments and the wins. They might be small, but they add up to something more than ever was before. Yeah. I couldn't agree more if I if I may add a few lines, but I think Caroline has hit the key points. But I just want to simply say the starting point is not good. 40% more likely to be unemployed, 10% more likely, 10 times more likely to experience violence. Uh, half the police killings in the US are people with disabilities. Um, difficult to get to the polls and, and, and support a democratic process. COVID hasn't made it easier, would be my second point. The first ones to be laid off, the first ones to see uh, the, the devastating effects of the cost increases we're now seeing in food or energy, it's always the poor and the disadvantaged who pay a disproportionate price. But what makes it more difficult for people with disability is that the disability intersects with the, the larger systems of oppression and, and racism and poverty or other things that we've seen, especially come out during the uh, COVID crisis. And, uh, you know, I would want to use this opportunity anyway to give our sympathy for the terrible killings again that happened in Canada this time. And, and some of the violence that you also suffered there, uh, really all a, a, a direct result of poverty and exclusion and, and having an economic system that doesn't fit for everybody. On the positive side, there's definitely more awareness. I think it has become a silent discussion in the boardrooms, but still too many companies rather not publish about it, not talk about it as Caroline says, and frankly, not take the more courageous actions that are needed to really deal with these issues uh, once and for all in a decisive way. Uh, I'm positively enthusiastic about the results that we got on the initiatives that we've done. The Valuable 500 Collective now is a wonderful opportunity to give these CEOs more courage. Collectively, they always become more courageous, I find, 
in the initiatives we're involved in and sharing best practices. So good to see that nearly 90% feel that they're making progress on their commitments, at least amongst the valuable 500 group, that they see improvements on their uh, strategies on disability versus what happened before COVID, that they are uh, able to make some changes. The first ones usually are in the recruiting or interviewing processes, the uh, the way they advertise their inclusiveness as employers and uh, and actively starting to seek the candidates with disability. And that's obviously encouraging to see more so in Europe, perhaps slightly less extent to the US from where I'm sitting and doing so much in Africa, which is one of my prime focuses. You know, it's a lot to do still. I can tell you we have won the lottery ticket of life by having been born in this part of the world, and that's still the case today. Paul and and Carolyn, everything that you're speaking to about this uh, concept of collective impact and how things are changing. And um, Carolyn, you know, I really like this idea of, uh, I, I mean, I love anybody who says that there's too much navel gazing uh, going on. And uh, people hear me quote, sometimes and I say a little less conversation a little more action um <laughs> and, and you know when you talk about this the 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 historical changes and you talk about the intersectionality um Paul that you're that you're referencing when you talk about the impacts of things like uh, uh global poverty climate change uh the the global economic state that we're in um we talk about the, the the people being assigned uh, these these spaces of vulnerability um, and being somewhat kept in there, and a lot of that is is um, you know going back to Carolyn when you were quoting some of those numbers about even from a leadership level, there's there's a reluctance, a reluctance to self-identify and and a, and a and a feeling of not not being I I don't want to put words into anybody's thoughts but for me it translates into a feeling of it's still not it's still not safe and we we actually had a an article here that was published just a couple of weeks ago i think it was like august 2nd in the globe and mail which is one of canada's national newspapers and um and it was talking about a piece that says you know despite the labor shortage and so despite this incredible need um workers who have a disability still getting left behind and it was uh, a woman named Margot Bach and she uh, founded the Canadian Association of Professionals with Disabilities she said and I quote they've said people with disabilities are this emerging group in the workplace every decade since the 80s so what's your take on on a comment like that oh Okay, can I, I just gonna, this is where you're gonna hear my frustration. How on earth, two things. One is none of us are defined by one element of our identity. I get so frustrated with this. I'm a woman, I am over 50. I have, I'm not a biological mother. I have a disability. I mean, I could go on, I'm multiple labels and I, I, I fit three diversity categories right now. So um, one of them being age, I never knew that I was gonna be considered old over 50. Um, so this idea that um, disabled people, and that's all we are, it, it's, uh, it just infuriates me. It is part of what we are, and it is an extraordinary insight into innovation. Can I just say that? We seem to forget 
the different lived experience is drives innovation and drives insight. And I, I know I oversay this, but text messaging was designed for people who are hearing impaired. We all use it, inclusive design. Remote controls were designed for people, for blind people to watch television. You know, why don't we see that difference is a point of differentiation, which is something that brands need and innovation needs, right? Paul will tell you that. The second point, she is so right. We've been talking about this emerging group of talent, but what people are not willing to actually own, we cannot increase the numbers of people with disabilities into employment if we do not understand that value that I've spoken to. If we do not understand that people with disabilities and their families currently are 54% of our global economy. Now, what business wants to keep that business out? I mean, I'm serious. Conservatively, we're saying it's 13 trillion. We need to stop this conversation about, you know, governments getting people with disabilities into business if we're not linking it to the market space, to the innovation and to the insight that it drives it. That's why we called it the valuable 500, okay? We are valuable <laughs> and we are not they, and you're part of this group all the time. And if you talk of any other community, whether it's LGBTQI or race or socioeconomic background or faith, disability is part of all of them, yeah? Like, so when I talk about disability, it just infuriates me. It's like, when we talk about gender, what about disabled women? <laughs> when we LGBTQI, where's disability amongst that? Why are we not interconnecting all of this into this space? Because what is good for one should be good for all. And so she's absolutely right. I totally understand her frustration, but we cannot talk about employment if we do not connect it to the value that we bring. And secondly, if we don't even know the employees that are currently in our business, 80% of disability is invisible. I dare our companies of the 22 million, I can guarantee between 12 to 15% of that cohort have lived experience of disability and are hiding it. Why? Because they don't feel safe, to your point. So let's get over ourselves and create cultures where we would actually see the truth of our employees and then tell me why we're not employing more. Obviously, I've had too much coffee today. I will stop talking. No, no. There you have it. There. I want to say there you have it. But, um, you know, when I was running Unilever and I wanted uh, to strengthen our maternity policies, I didn't design the policy. I asked the people that were involved, the women that were on maternity leave, Absolutely. to develop the strategy. When we were looking at, um, you know, uh, flexible compensation depending on the lifestyle that people had, or what age, what age profile, and where they needed the help, we asked those people to do that. So, and you get much better conclusions. But somehow, the underrepresentation that we have in society of the people with disabilities in the in the areas that we want to get them to be more represented establishes uh, damaging cultural norms i think that perpetuate the exclusion of those people who we try to make part of the system in the first place both in their professional and personal capabilities so you know it's it's amazing how many myths there are and i also had to overcome them we should not be ashamed of them but oh it's more costly to employ someone with disability oh it's it's uh, they are less productive they're likely less loyal um you know but they take a lot of your time that goes away from building the business i mean i've heard all of that they're sick more often and anytime you look at any of these myths and and you believe in data and science, which I know some people don't when it comes to climate change, but at least here, I hope that we can show that we have the facts that all these myths are indeed myths, that they are not right. So on the one hand, our own, uh, what people might call the soft uh, 
by country of our own low expectations, our own self-biasness, the inability to treat everybody in their full uh, agency and, and make them part of that solution and accept what that is. You know, one of my friends that was is blind and, and we had a dinner for the blind here in the UK to sensitize more people. And so I said, I said, why don't you apply to Unilever? And he said, I don't because I'm happy what I'm doing. I said, I don't want you to necessarily work in Unilever. I just want you to apply to Unilever because I was heavily involved in the blind and deaf blind. And I felt that the company had taken a lot of uh, actions to make it easier for people to apply. He came back with two or three pages and it wasn't happy reading. And we were, you know, quite far from where I thought we were. That's simply because we didn't ask the people involved themselves to, to go through this and bring it. So it goes back to basic human values at the end of the day. And, uh, and be sure that we don't only invite them and have a seat at the table, like so many other things in the sustainable development goals that we talked, but that ultimately these people own the table. And that's only the point that we can expect a real progress and overcome some of these preconceived notions or unconscious biasness that are probably the biggest ones that that still get in the way. Yeah, um, I often wonder who's doing the inviting the people to the table. <laughs> so this is my question. Who has the, the right to write the invitation? So what I think is just so we we have some sense, I wish there were more leaders who were willing to do what you do, Paul, because I think it's not being frightened that we don't have the solutions. Yesterday, Kate at One Young World, one of the co-founders, stood on the stage and was took accountability for the fact that there wasn't a captioning in the main stage and within the conference said, we will do better. That matters. You don't have to have all the answers, but own the mistakes. And I think the gap between resolving disability inclusion or making it actually happen is will and intention to make mistakes and will and intention to keep going and will and intention to ask where we don't know and understand and not shame people when people make mistakes. I think this, it's not just even the fear of disability, it's the fear of causing offense and the fear of getting it wrong and the fear of being sued. There's a lot of fear in there. And I think when people admit that they don't know and ask with the intention of learning and take accountability when they don't get it right, I think that's where we see permission to try, right? And, and that's all we can ask for and then build on what works and learn from what doesn't. I mean, it really is becoming, uh, you know, a more of a driving force than it ever has, it seems. So I want to I want to ask you and again, whoever, you know, whoever wants to, to jump in. I mean, how much do you think disability inclusion is driving the future of work now? Or does it kind of depend on what part of the world we're talking about? I personally don't think it's um, Dean, it's part of the world. If you talk Europe and the US for a second, in other parts of the world, there are different challenges we can talk separately. But one of the things I, I did before COVID, I took my leadership team to uh, Perkins School of the Blind in Boston, Massachusetts. And we talked to the IT person who was blind himself, was born blind. He knew more about IT than any of us in the room. That night we went to the baseball game from the Red Sox. We didn't know about baseball at all. I mean, it's not a sports we grew up with. We had blind or deafblind people go with us and, and, and mentor us and explain the game, very much a numbers game. They were into it and they could explain the game better to us than anybody else. It just opened our eyes. You know, Helen Keller, who went to Perkins, 
and uh, spoke six languages, was deaf and blind. She was always asked, it must be horrible to be blind. And her answer was always the same. It's not being blind or that is horrible. It's the having eyes and not uh, being able to see, which is the problem. And I think that is for most of us. What I find increasingly is that people with uh, disabilities, which I personally like to call disabilities, um, and and uh, many might not agree with me there, but uh, that these people are much better able to deal with this environment that we now live in, that some people call the Fuka world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. From day one, when they were born, they had to deal with uncertainties to figure out who are the system around them and, and how to function in that. I think these people are much better placed than anybody else right now in any of these companies, in my opinion, to deal with, uh, with the challenges that we face. So it should be their time. On top of that, with COVID, we've shown some certain flexibilities on how we can work and where we can work. That should be to their advantage. And finally, what I've seen, although it's difficult for us to adapt, Technology is going very fast. And if I now see what is available, also for people with disabilities, often it puts them in a better position than people that don't provide the, or that don't use or leverage these corrected, uh, corrective uh, technologies. So I think it's time that we open our minds. And this is why this is like anything. It's a human transformation that needs to happen to make the systems transformation possible. And as Caroline talked about, we need to spend more time on, on getting it in people's minds. The people that are able to open those doors need to be given the key. And this is what the Valuable 500 is trying to do. Well, and from, from my perspective, I think, is it changing the future of work? Yeah, I do think so, actually. When Elon Musk came out of his disability closet and owned his Asperger's, uh, he's kind of running, he's kind of one of the most successful people in business. Uh, when Richard Branson talks about his Dyslexia as being something that has really fueled a different way of thinking. Um, when we see some of our greatest um, tech uh, talent often um, really owning their neurodiversity, do I think there's an opportunity here? Yeah, I do. And I think Paul's absolutely right. In a world that is, um, you know, very different, very difficult, um, we do need different perspectives. And those different perspectives are different ways in which we, we work with our environment. In a way, I kind of feel like it's the big, you know, it's we need to kind of get the big reveal of the talent that's in there and people's lived experiences and owning it. And then you're re rewriting the story because I can definitely tell you lived experience of disability is contributing hugely to our global economy, but we don't see it. But then on the other hand, disability, people are not getting that chance because there's barriers in front of them to reach their potential, whether it's through education or whether it's through getting that first chance to get into a job. So for those of us who are in the privilege of where we are, is own our truth to remove the barriers and ensure that everybody has the same chance. And I do think that's where it can change. I will take Paul up on it. He knows I don't like the word disability because in a way I feel like it's skirting around something. I have a disability. It is nothing to be ashamed about. I have a different way of looking at the world. I have a different way of experiencing the world. And finally, finally, 22 or something years later, I came out of that closet. It's part of me and I'm proud of it. And so whatever word we use, it's just a different way of experiencing the world. And that is what we're hoping, not just for disability, but for if we want to have real human inclusion, 
we need to be respectful of all the different ways, not just a disability way, but all of our ways of living. Um, so I, I, I kind of feel we are part, Dean, of that new way of work. I hope we are integrated and in connect, interconnected. Are we driving it alone? No, but we are all together driving a world where we need to see universally inclusive corporate cultures to create a universally inclusive society. It may be idealistic, but if that's not what we're aiming for, I don't know what we are because 50% inclusion is not right. I, I, I wanna talk about that, that new way of working for a minute. Um, you know, Caroline, you know, do you think disability inclusion is kind of driving the future of work more now because of the way things have shifted over the last two years as a result of COVID, you know, the old remote working or work from anywhere capability and that businesses managed to, you know, make modifications at the drop of a hat. And I use the word modifications there. Um, yeah, on, our, on our very first episode, we had our Federal Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion on the show, uh, Carla Qualtro, and, you know, she made specific reference to the fact that, you know, we need to get away from using the word accommodation and, you know, modification is, you know, is, is the better, the better word now because you just modify the way you do things. So is this whole modified way of working, you know, having an impact on how much disability inclusion is changing the nature of things? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a great call out. Um, what we discovered in 17 days, most of our companies were able to adapt to virtual working, right? And everybody needed adjustments, accommodations, modifications, right? Okay, so like why before COVID, it was a big deal. Oh, people with disabilities have expensive accommodations. Everybody needed them in COVID. So that was one thing. And we learned that if the intentionality was behind it and if people had a desire to, they could. The most important thing that happened in COVID, and I, you know, I think Paul and I will both agree, it's the intention and the time that we give things that is going to make the change, right? If you can excuse your way out of things and find reasons for it to be difficult, then you won't do anything at all. What happened with COVID is the system, this intractable, immovable business system changed. Just remember that it changed because it had to and because it wanted to. So the question is, how do we get people to want to be part of the change? Well, let me tell you how we do. Every one of us is going to experience disability in our lifetime. You are future-proofing the society to which you grow old in. You are future-proofing the businesses to which you engage with. And let us remember by 2030, 60% of the wealth in our world will be in the hands of people who are 60 and older. And as we know, when we get older, things don't work as well as they do. So it is about intentionality. It's about uh, uh, you know, deciding that we're going to do it, not for them, but for all of us, for all of us. And so you've got to remember when we're even talking about disability, it's not just the person who's living with the disability. It's often the mother and the father, the sister and the brother who has a sibling who's involved in that workforce. Remember disability, 80% is acquired between the ages of 18 and 64. That's in the workforce. There's many reasons why, but just let's get off the fence. Disability is all of our business, all of our business for, for the importance for all of our lives to future-proof our society for ourselves and for others. And that's kind of it. And that's where it should land. It's about will and intention. And, you know, Caroline, Caroline, I was going to ask about the state of disability inclusion in business, but instead I'm going to, I'm going to, 
jump off of what you're saying here because you're talking about this intentionality you're talking about human inclusion you're talking about harnessing all of these uh this wave of awareness that is coming from so many different places now that people are understanding um, or at least the discussion is happening around intersectionality around the ability to modify around the fact that that the time for excuses is ending has i mean we know it ended a long time ago but the the curtains that one could hide behind uh, have been pulled back and so when we think about all of these aspects to disability inclusion what do you think is the most important thing that business leaders need to understand about it that maybe they don't well look you're talking to one of the best i mean you're talking to one of the most impressive business leaders here with paul and so that question should be with paul but what i and the reason i say that not because he's just my boss but it is also because um truly the most important thing business leaders need to know, unless they have a lived experience, know what you don't know. Seriously, I, I can't like, do you know what? If it, I, I'm so concerned when business leaders, if they want the cheat cheat for disability inclusion, they want us to tell them how to do it. How can I tell some of the smartest people in their business or in their industry how to do it? You're smart people. Bring the people in, Paul's right, go into your people, ask your people in the business who are connected to disability how you can do it better. Ask, admit you don't know, but don't think that you can walk away from this issue anymore because it's your issue too. The most important thing a business leader can do, and Paul and I sat on a stage when Peter Grauer, the chair of Bloomberg said, we are not doing enough I don't know how to do it. Mic drop. Permission. Wow. And and Paul, uh, you know what? Jumping off of that, what do you think is the most important thing that business leaders perhaps still don't understand? Well, the first thing that we need to do and, and continue to do is understand the business leaders because that's how you, you change them. To um, to put our judgments on them would be the same as them putting judgments on disability. We don't want either way. So we just need to be open here and thought a little bit. And it's a tough time to be a CEO. There are many different balls they have to juggle and, and the situation that they're now facing, be it uh, climate change or be it uh, geopolitical situations or be it... Uh, uh, many uh, the pandemic itself and many of the other challenges are not making it easy to be a CEO and probably it absorbs a certain amount of uh, attention and uh, whilst not excusable it perhaps goes away from other things so the first thing you have to really try to get through is the importance of including everybody when we talked about the valuable 500 and try to convince the most important CEOs to to join the effort we ended up with 500 but we probably called 700. Let's just call a spade a spade here. And many of them- 2,500. Say, yeah, but I'm just, you know- I'm Yeah, no, no, I'm, you're so right. You're absolutely so right. I didn't want to make them sound that bad. But you know, <laughs> you know, they had, uh, no, no, today is the, this year is the year of George Floyd because now it's all, I have a racial dimension and I need to focus on that. Or I'm still busy with gender diversity. So you really have to explain to them, you cannot do that in an organization you represent that often has to be a reflection of society. 
that you just say this is the time for this group, that group or the other. How do you make it an integrated plan so that each and everybody in your organization can can rise to their fullest potential? And the, the disability is actually a overarching uh, call it an umbrella that permeates all these other groups. So it's very important to get that into people's minds. Um, the morality works with some, less with others, but there is a moral case that needs to be understood. I always find that is a strong basis for purpose-driven businesses. But then there are others that are continuously driven by the myoptic focus on shareholder primacy and, and short-term results. And there you just have to explain with, with hard facts that this is a better economic case, which is increasingly easier to make. Like there is a very strong economic case now to move to a, a greener, a more sustainable future to attack the issues of climate change. There is also in a very uh, compelling case to be made to move to a more equitable future. Companies that understand that will position themselves very well for the, for the future of the institutions they represent. Companies that don't, I think, will increasingly uh, head to the uh, graveyard of dinosaurs, if I may call it that way. Wow. Well, you know, I, I had a couple of questions I was going to ask, but you've covered so many, you know, so many insightful points here. You know, Caroline, you know, what do you think is the message that resonates most with business leaders about disability inclusion? I'm going to go back to something that Paul said. Um, everybody's a human being, right? Business leaders aren't machines. They're moms and dads, they're sisters and brothers, they're, they're friends, right? Disability is everywhere. Every room I go into, every single room that I've, and believe me, I've had to, I've been campaigning for years. I have never, ever come out of a room without somebody coming saying, I just didn't realize it was so close to me. And by, by not talking about it, I wasn't doing anything. I believe, and it has worked, and I, I mean, maybe Paul will disagree with me, but I think it is leading with the heart and backing it up with the science and the data and the business case. It is a very fine balance between the human being and the business leader who has to deliver to the shareholder and they must deliver to the bottom line. Investing in disability is not going to um, cost without a significant return on investment. It does deliver. The, it is proven. We have the research. But never forget, <laughs> the leaders of our business are human beings. And as a human being grows older and we change and we do, um, you know, what am I leaving behind? What is my legacy? So a very clear balance of who I am as a human and what I can do in this privileged position backed up with hard facts and science. That to me is what I believe the Valuable 500 CEOs have responded to. And Paul, jumping off of what Carolyn is saying, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back for a second to the focus of the Valuable 500 initiative. If we're understanding everything correctly, it's about getting CEOs of global corporations to make sure disability inclusion is on the agenda. Understanding that, as the name of our podcast is, you can't have inclusion without a D. Um, but what about the smaller and medium-sized enterprises and businesses that are driving the economy. Here in Canada, our stats are telling us 97% of businesses are small to medium-sized enterprises. How do we get them 
to follow the lead of these big corporations that are standing alongside you that have committed to disability inclusion? What can we do? Yeah, so that is an important part. And obviously with the valuable 500, we had to make a choice. That's like anything in life, like any good strategy, you have to make choices. And our theory of change is really that if you get the 500 most admirable, probably progressive companies with, with great leaders to take these courageous decisions and move out of their comfort zone, then you actually can move society, including the SMEs. The, the SMEs in every country, uh, even in my native, the Netherlands, is, it's uh, 80 to 90% of the global economy. There are very few countries in the world where that would not be the case, but they're all in the value chains of these multinationals. Uh, increasingly, these companies make commitments that go well beyond what you call scope one and two, which is under their own control and take responsibility of their value chains. They are able to share best practices and resources, what worked, what didn't work, which the SMEs then can pick up and just run with it. And, uh, and more importantly, I think they, these bigger companies are able to ultimately also work the broader changes that we need by working with uh, civil society and governments to put the right changes in place. I mean, it is crazy to read statistics that most companies are rather paying fines than, than implementing uh, laws that are in the books to protect or help people with disabilities. And yet there is no enforcement in many parts of the world. So the system ultimately needs to work by the things we've talked on this podcast, which has been very enlightening, but also you have to have the right regulations and enforcement in place at governmental level. So you need these valuable 500 companies to create that umbrella and the stronger and more resilient the programs coming out of it over the years as well by the valuable 500 members. And it's already starting to happen. The more the SMEs can pick it up. There are many other organizations that actually will take these learnings, which are all in the public domain. Uh, the UN Global Compact, which I chair, has 17,000 companies, many of them SMEs. Uh, the International Chambers of Commerce, which I'm the honorary chair of and used to chair, we have 48 million companies. They are closely linked in the World Economic Forum, where Caroline has launched it. All these networks are closely tied into this work and will make all of this very accessible to the SMEs as well and, and, and allow them to implement these same things. And often what we find, like in so many other things, that the SMEs are, are actually more agile and faster. In yeah. uh, it's, it's just the opposite of what we think, you know, they're actually closer to the people, closer to the reality of society. And uh, we've seen some stories there that I think the bigger companies could learn a lot from. I mean, that is exactly it. I just thank you for saying it because the best practice happens in the SMEs, right? So the reason we chose the valuable 500 was because that's where the gap was. And also to Paul's point is where we could really look at systemic change within the bigger societal system. But please, for anybody in a small and medium-sized organization, that's where the good work is being done. I don't know what happens when the companies grow. They just seem to lose. They seem to lose what they were when they were smaller. And as a, as a CEO of a small enterprise, uh, Odin is uh, uh, 10 people strong. Uh, we say we're, we're small but mighty and that we hit outside our weight class. Uh, it's, it's first encouraging to hear this messaging and, and I can confirm that a lot of what we do when we think about our position in thought leadership, in action and in, in an example, 
uh, we are learning continuously from the larger companies as well. They have the ability to put systems in place, structures, flows, processes, that as a small organization that doesn't have that kind of human capital, I, it's being built around us. And it's on me to go and find that information or find the things that resonate with our values and our culture and and pull on that experience. And so I do, I, I thank you for, for making this stage and enabling us to have this accessibility to this kind of leadership and, and thought example. Um, when, we, when we think about leadership, this is somewhat close to the end of our conversation. Unfortunately, I feel like this could be a seven hour podcast. Um, there's so much to talk about. But for any business leader out there who's listening to this episode, what is the key thing that you want them to take away from the conversation? This is the most, what is the most important message? And Carolyn, Caroline, let's let's start. You're not in trouble. So Caroline, <laughs> let's start with you first and then and then to Paul for your perspective. Three things, just begin. Ask the questions. Talk to your people. They're all there. They're in the business. That's what I would do uh, with anything actually in my business. I'd ask our team first, what would they do if there was a problem given to me? Reach out to other leaders who might maybe have started that journey sooner. And I think, you know, I'm gonna be curious with this, be curious and intentional about making change. Um, because as, I, as I've said to so many times before, it's not for them, it's for us and it's for you. So uh, I just, it's to start the conversation, reach out and be curious and intentional. So I would um, I would just um, add to that is is the first thing that is needed is the courage. It's the courage to set targets that uh, society demands. Fifteen percent of the population, many companies have two to three percent of people with disability. That's just not serious. It's like nearly denying that climate change exists. So if you don't set uh, targets of of uh, I want to get to above ten percent. I don't think you'll get the step changes you need. So I have that courage. I think it starts with that. I like the word courage. It comes from the heart. The French word cur, and uh, anything that goes through the heart will stick in the brain. It has to be something you really believe in, and people will notice that. Just to only uh, talk to talk and not walk that talk is very dangerous, and I think you'll do your company more damage. So that's the first step, and and uh, that starts as Caroline says also with awareness. The second one is really is uh, in each of your companies, it might not be all known or transparent or public, but you have people with disabilities. If you are the size of the companies that we work with, empower those groups and, and really, you know, like you were perhaps forced to do or did voluntarily on uh, creating groups around racial or LGBT or or gender, you really have to set up something there that is structural, where you give these people the agency uh, uh, to uh, to develop their plans and not patronizing them. That's quite different. And then the third thing you need to do as an organization is to embed it in everything you do. It has to become an automatic lens. When we were hiring smallholder farmers to provide our, our agricultural materials, we wanted half of the smallholder farmers to be women. When we deal with businesses in our value chain, we wanted half of them to be 
business owned. So have a lens of disability in all you do is a very important thing. We found out in our advertising that we were portraying women one way versus men that wasn't conducive for a gender balanced organization. We found out we had underrepresentation, huge underrepresentation of people with disability in our advertising. And anytime we adjusted that consciously with the help of the people, actually our business got rewarded for that, which is my final point. I understand that for some of them, this might all be a little bit too soft, but ultimately have the courage to ask yourself and be open-minded to ask people to uh, link all the things you're doing to the business results. And ultimately that will drive the last skeptics out of the system and, uh, and make it ingrained in the heart of your company, in your culture where it ultimately needs to be. If it doesn't arrive there and doesn't create ultimately that culture of dignity, respect, equality and compassion that we talked about, you're missing something very big, not only in your own company, but frankly, in life as well. You know, I live with a cross-wired head, and I think my head's going to explode trying, trying to process all these amazing insights and great insights you have both provided. But just before we go, I have to ask you one last question, and it's kind of become my trademark question because I was taught back in journalism school, it's the most important question you ask, you know, it's been a great conversation, you know, have we covered all the essentials, do you think? I mean, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important to mention? I'm afraid to open my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I think if there's one thing we could remember, we're in a different time and social media and our digital world is we do have a chance to design inclusion in from the beginning. Inclusive design as we design our, uh, a more digital world and we're talking about metaverses and all that kind of stuff. Do we have people with disabilities as part of the design process? Not, let's not make the same mistake twice. Well, I want to end on the fact that we haven't talked about the great work that you guys are doing and uh, was Odin and to bring attention to this topic. It's actually still quite difficult to get airtime. I even see it on my uh, social media, which has quite a lot of followers that anytime I talk about some of the wonderful things that Caroline is doing in the Valuable 500, it gets less retweets. We really have a, a thing still that is a challenge that we should not deny and, and uh, like to really see with the work that Caroline is doing, what you're standing for, you know, how can you create these these broader alliances, you know, if there's one thing that I'm passionate about in life is, is to bring people together to clearly solve things that we can't do alone anymore. And I think this falls under that topic. It's not good or bad. It's just that we need to start with recognizing that reality and create these broader partnerships to drive the systems changes at scale, because this requires a systems change. So I admire the companies that are on that journey. I admire the progress that is being made, but more importantly, I admire you for having the courage to have a podcast around this and, and, uh, you know, and it's not a surprise that it comes from uh, Canadians, as I see in so many different areas. So welcome to being half brothers and sisters of us Europeans. I, I, Tina, I don't, I, I, I don't I, even I, know how to reply to that. Yeah. Let doesn't know what to say. And all I can say is, you know, I'm half Irish and, and half English. So, you know, I, 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 I have this. Caroline will like that. <laughs> Caroline's delighted about the half Irish part too. Yeah, for sure. So, and, sometimes, sometimes I say that's why I'm always arguing with myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, and, 
I, I just, I have to say thank you for, for that. And, uh, and you definitely have um, very committed half brothers and sisters across the pond here. And uh, I hope that this is the first of many conversations. I'm envisioning conversations where we're bringing in multiple people. Um, and if anything that we can do to provide stage, to amplify, uh, to, to, to give platform to this conversation um, where we can help to move the needle forward, uh, you know, we'll be in touch about some, some of our, our, our local and our regional and our national initiatives that we're doing that perhaps as, as our new brother and sister, you might want to start doing um, as well. I think that there's so much that we all have an opportunity to learn from each other. And at the end of the day, this conversation, I think, validates everything you've been saying about reaching out and just asking. Um, if Dean had not just reached out and asked for this conversation, it wouldn't have happened. And I thought, there's no way that this conversation is gonna happen. And so I'm just, I'm I'm thrilled and, and over the moon and to the stars and back about it. And I, again, um, very glad to be part of the family. Um, and so Dean, I, I, I throw to you. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's nice to be considered part of the family. Um, because, you know, I, you know, I think that, I think was that, I guess the Canadians historically have a reputation for, for getting things done kind of thing. You know, when you, I, I'm a history buff and, you know, when you read your world war one and world war two history, you know, it was the Canadians who got, got things done a lot of the times, but anyway, you know, um, I know there's a five hour time difference and it, it's getting on for dinner time and you must be getting hungry over there. So we're going to let you go so you can get on with your evening and, Thanks again to both of our guests. It's been an incredible conversation. Thank you, Caroline Casey and Paul Pullman. Thank you. And thank you again from me. Take care. Thank you thank so you. much, guys. Well, Bye. that's it for this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. I'm Jeanette Campbell. And I'm Dean Askin. Wherever you're listening from in Canada, the UK, or around the world, Thanks again for listening to this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Join us each episode as we have insightful conversations like this one and explore the power of inclusion, disability and employment, and the business benefits of disability inclusion from all the angles. You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D is produced in Toronto, Canada by the Ontario Disability Employment Network. All rights reserved. Our podcast production team, executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell. Our producer is Sue Defoe, associate producer and host, and audio production, Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.com. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.